can't offer an ex a scientific explanation, uh, but there's some sort, uh, maybe you know what I'm talking about, there's some sort of mysterious, weird chemistry going on between people and their cars. Do you, ever, do, you ever see, do you ever think about that? Especially guys, you know, whenever I go to car shows, it's like, guys are like, you know, their, their cars are just, this is the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life. And, uh, but I, you know, a few weeks ago, Mary and I were down in Florida for a conference, and then we took a few days vacation, and I, I, I went to the Enterprise, you know, rent a car, or they, you know, they came to us and picked us up because they pick you up. And then they, they brought us to the place, and, uh, you know, I, I went up and I said, you know, I've reserved a compact car, smallest car, smallest price, right, uh, best gas mileage. And uh, so uh, he, he took me outside, he goes, look, you know, we don't have uh, the compact car. Uh, would you like to take that car? And I looked at the car, and it was a Dodge Challenger. And uh, so I looked at it, and I looked at Marianne to get the okay, you know, and she kind of, one of those, all right, you know, boys will be boys kind of thing, I think. That's what I kind of was looking at. And I said to the guy, yeah, we'll take that one. So, um, and for that week that I was driving that Dodge, Dodge Challenger, man, I felt powerful. I felt in control. I felt, you know... Uh, it, it, it was just, an, it was an amazing feeling. Uh, I, I find it uh, hard to believe that I did not get a ticket for speeding at any time during that week. Um, I have to tell you, I was bad to the bone for a week, I'm going to tell you right now. And I started thinking if there was some sort of psychology behind the cars that we drive. And so I started snooping around, and, and there definitely is, I kind of knew that, but I, I, now I... I got some scientific studies and explanations behind it. Many believe that the thinking and behavior surrounding automobiles uh, is incredibly insightful. How you think about cars and your car, and they give us a glimpse into the mind and personality of car owners and car buyers. Your ride, they say, uh, can say and does say a lot about you, or it says a lot about what you'd like to be and your message to others of what you'd like to be. Now, psych psychological research shows that the population at large draws conclusions about the personality of car owners from their vehicles. In other words, cars with a, or for instance, I should say, cars with a wide grille and with narrow headlights, uh, those car owners uh, are, are kind of perceived as uh, aggressive and dominant. If you have a large windshield, like you ever see a Volkswagen Beetle, with the large windshield, it, it, it's, it's almost like it's, you think of a child, you think of, of, of being happy. Research suggests that humans assess the shape of cars in the same way as they do other people's faces. You know, you're making all kinds of judgments about somebody from their face when they come up to you. you don't, they don't have to say a word, you're already calculating things in your mind because of where you've been, because of what you've experienced. Some cars look happy, some cars look aggressive. Uh, this is all marketing, too. I mean, they, they didn't just say, hey, this would be cool. They've done thousands of focus groups, and they figure out who they're trying to sell to. Some cars look sad, and by extension, the people who drive these cars are seen to possess the same personality traits as the cars many times that they're driving. There are cars that are literally considered feminine. I was going to put up some some, some of those, and, and, but then I said, there's got to be a guy driving this car, and, and, they, and they will leave here, and they will hate me, or they'll sell their car tomorrow. I don't want to get, listen, I don't want to make any enemies. The color of cars, 
you know, drives a person. They tell us about their personality. It's called the psychology of color. Yeah, it's, real, it's a real thing. And it suggests that colors have a wide range of effect on us, from boosting our moods to causing anxiety. The color of the car you buy says something about the individual you are and the image you might be trying to project. Now, a few years ago, this is true, this wasn't a joke, a group of leading evangelical scholars, I mean real heavyweights who have written commentaries and systematic theologies and all kinds, kinds of things like that, they, they went to a bunch of these educators and I asked them this question, honest, what would Jesus drive? What would Jesus drive? And according to them, you know, you put all the information into the little calculator there, he would drive a small, four-cylinder, practical, responsible car. That's, that's what it came out to. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and you're asking yourself, what in the world does this discussion have anything to do <laughs> with Palm Sunday? Well, there is one instance that I know of where Jesus, in a manner of speaking, drove something. And I think his choice of vehicle, as I was thinking about it this week, spoke volumes uh, about him, and I think sp- speaks volumes to us about him today. Uh, I, I think we need to look at that this morning. Uh, his vehicle uh, and his choice of vehicle, uh, which you probably know was just read by Liz, uh, says a lot. Now, she just read from Luke chapter 19, and yet all four Gospels say something about the scene that was read for us this morning. She read Luke 19. I like that, that version, and I want to address some of the things that are in that, that fuller kind of rendering of the story. Now, the Gospels all record this incredible reception and this wild parade that greeted Jesus as he boldly rode into Jerusalem, even though he was a wanted man. Remember that. He was, you know, his, his poster was on every lamppost in Jerusalem, you know, wanted by, by the authorities. And what happened when he came into Jerusalem was really a first century version of a ticket tape parade. Now, the John 12 account of this same event said that many people in the crowd who had witnessed the miracle of Lazarus being raised just a couple of days before. Remember, the, remember Jesus, his very good friend Lazarus? He had been in the grave for a number of days, and he went there, and Mary and Martha, the sisters, greeted him. They said, Lord, if you had only been here, he would not have died. And, and, but God had a bigger purpose, and he raised him from the dead. And folks, let me just tell you something right now. If you raise somebody from the dead, it's very difficult to keep that story quiet. So a lot of the people who were in the crowd in Jerusalem, as as Jesus kind of rode into town on this hot ride on on that Palm Sunday, that first Palm Sunday, they had heard about what he had done, even if they hadn't been there. And a lot of them probably had been there. And word got around, and the crowd there began to swell, and they wildly welcomed Jesus as they would a conquering king. And the Bible says that they laid their coats in the road as sort of a crude red carpet, you know, and and, they also took palm branches that they cut down on the trees, and they put him in the road as he passed, and John says in John chapter 12 that as he passed by them, they shouted, Hosanna, which doesn't mean, you know, hip, hip, hooray, or, or you go, Jesus. What basically it means is, save us now. Hosanna. Hosanna, save us now. This was, this was the voice of a, of a desperate people. 
of people who knew that they were, they were drowning and they needed someone to throw them a, a life raft. Lee Strobel, thinking about this whole thing, asked these questions. He said, what really was going on that Palm Sunday and what is the significance of it today? Why should we even care about it since we are sitting here today 6,000 miles away from Jerusalem and 2,000 years distant from the event? And I read that and I said, good questions. And although, you know, he said, although it sounded odd, he believed that the answers to those questions could be found in Jesus' ride that day as he entered Jerusalem, which truly lit a fuse on the most explosive week in human history. And the more I thought about what he was writing about, and the more I thought about what he said, the more I said to myself, you know what? He's right. He's right. Um, and Strobel pointed out that the donkey told them a number, or should tell us a number of things, a number of valuable things about the rider that day. So there's three things that I look and I see, and, and, and he pointed out, and I expand upon this morning, that we should be able to tell about the ride that day. The first thing was, it should tell us who he was. Who he was. The question is, how can a four-legged, long-eared, scruffy, dumb-as-dirt animal like a donkey tell us anything important about who Jesus was? People who know these things are going to tell you that the average intelligence of a donkey is very, very low. They're about five points below a doorknob. I mean, they are just not intelligent creatures at all. This is not the donkey of the Shrek movies, okay, that we came to love and know and is witty and makes jokes and kind of is running the show. That's not who we're talking about here. Jesus didn't choose the donkey for his intelligence. He chose the donkey as a sign. About 500 years before Palm Sunday, a prophet by the name of Zechariah foretold that the Messiah, the one endowed with the power of salvation, would one day ride into Jerusalem atop a young donkey. And he wrote this in Zechariah 9. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus Christ used the donkey to make a blatant and very unambiguous statement to the world that he indeed was the long-awaited for Messiah. This is the sign for them. If they needed any additional sign, this was it. Well, how do we know he was telling the truth? You may be here today and you're, you may be a skeptic. You may live with a skeptic. How do you know that he was telling the truth? You're probably aware that there have been many, many people throughout history right up to the present day, who have claimed to be the Messiah, who have literally claimed to be the Son of God. For instance, there was Jemima Wilkinson. Jemima Wilkinson was a charismatic American evangelist in the uh, late 1700s. She mostly ministered on a circuit uh, through Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York, which back then, you know, that's a lot of mileage, you know, putting on a, walking and putting on a horse. And as a young woman, the story goes, she was beset with a, debilit a debilitating illness which cu culminated in, quote, a fevered, ecstatic trance during which she sermonized and subsequent to which she uh, collapsed and she claimed was declared dead. So the story goes that she was placed in a coffin 
But as she was placed in the coffin, all of a sudden, the people outside started hearing, which would freak anybody out, I would think. So they opened it, and she was revived, and she started to gather a large group around her, and she claimed that she was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And she ended up, you know, convincing a lot of people like that. Well, she died in 1820, but before she died, she gave strict instructions to her followers that they should not bury her, because soon after she died, she was going to rise again. So they didn't. And her body began to decompose very slowly over many months and months. And one day, her followers said, I don't know what we're waiting for, and they all kind of dispersed. In the off, uh, kind of off-the-grid Rus- Russian uh, village lives a man who goes by the name of Vissarion. And he claims that he had a revelation around the time the Soviet Union collapsed, around in 1989. And he became Jesus Christ through, you know, reborn through this revelation. He is the founder of the Church of the Last Testament, and some people have estimated that he has upwards of 50,000 followers who live with him in several utopian echo villages in the Siberian woods to this day. They've built their own schools, churches, society, and, and Vissarion's proclamations have been published in 16 tomes titled The Last Testament. Now, i got to tell you, this guy is the coolest look of any of them that I was looking at. I think, you know, if I was going to become, you know, a, a non-believer and go, I think I, this guy has got the look like you can't even believe it. He's got it down pat. But in recent days, there's men like Sung Young Moon who claim the title of Messiah. Moon claimed uh, that when he was 15 years old, Jesus anointed him to carry out his unfinished work by becoming a parent to all of humanity. He took a dramatic turn on Easter 1936 in his life when he says Jesus appeared to him, quote, and spoke to him in Korean. During that conversion, he claimed Jesus made a startling revelation. And this is what he said to Sung Young Moon. He said, I did not come to die, but to create a true family. In fact, he claimed that since his mission was thwarted by the crucifixion, he was now anointing this 16-year-old Sung Myung Moon to complete his mission. Now, folks, I have to tell you, there have literally been thousands and thousands of false messiahs who have littered, littered the historical landscape both before Jesus and after Jesus. And a lot of times, you know, you read this stuff, and I didn't even bring you the most amusing ones. I mean, some of them are really really amusing and I guess they would be amusing right up to the time that one of my kids began to follow one of these false messiahs then then I have a feeling it wouldn't be so amusing anymore I have a feeling it would take a real serious turn Jesus said in Matthew 24 at that time if anyone says to you look here's the messiah or there he is Do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. Jesus was saying, you know, there have been messiahs claiming, you know, to be the son of God up to this point. There's going to be a lot more to come. Don't think it's strange. Just like, don't think suffering is strange. Don't think people come out and saying, you know what, and doing miraculous signs, wonderful things, cr- tremendous speakers, gathering a big crowd around them and saying, I am the Messiah. Don't be, you know, surprised at something like that. 
That's going to happen. But how do we know that Jesus was telling the truth when he said that he was the Messiah? You know, and I think God safeguarded that. And I think he looked at a guy like Tim Chicola, who would, who would you know, kind of question, maybe younger, younger in his life, and say, how do you know that this is the guy, really? And, and he left fingerprints or, you know, footprints in the sand that you could look at and say, well, you know what? really makes sense that he is. In effect, he gave out this set of fingerprints, and he said, when you find the one individual, the single individual with, who fit these fingerprints, you are going to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you have found the Messiah, that you have found the Savior of the world. And these fingerprints come down to us in the form of prophecies that were written, recorded in the Old Testament of the Bible. They were written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Do you know that there are more than 50 major prophecies in the Old Testament and several hundred, over 400, identifying characteristics that specifically and precisely define who the Messiah would be and what he would look like? And I have to tell you, it was not Jemima Wilkinson, and it certainly wasn't the Reverend Sung Young Moon. It was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Riding a donkey into Jerusalem just represented one, just one of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. It's true that he specifically arranged to fulfill the prophecy of getting on a donkey. I know some people are thinking, yeah, you know what? He's read, he's, he gets it, he's reading it, you know, uh, in, in the Old Testament scripture that he's going to be riding in the Messiah. So he, he says, you know what? I got to look the part. Let me go out and get a donkey. Okay, you know what? L let me just give you that one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give way that argument to you. Maybe in this, you know, this vast conspiracy that Jesus did exactly that. But many of the prophecies that were foretold hundreds of years earlier, Jesus could not have any way possible prearranged. There's no way he could have done it. For instance, could Jesus have arranged in advance where he was going to be born? In Bethlehem. The prophet Micah foretold that 700 years before the fact. Jesus couldn't have arranged in advance his intricate ancestry, uh, who he was born to, his parents, that he was going to work great miracles of healing as a sign uh, in front of many eyewitnesses, that he was going to be betrayed for a specific sum of money, or that he was going to be killed, he was going to be executed in a specific way. The prophecies about crucifixion were written before crucifixion, a terrible, horrible way to die, before crucifixion was even invented as a way of execution. You know, the Bible says that there are two people crucified, one on either side of Jesus, as we know. And that was kind of a normal thing. And, and what would happen was, was that when they wanted to get this thing moving, this execution when they had a morsel of mercy in their heart, believe it or not, they would go with a big, heavy, sledgehammer-looking thing, and they would break the legs of, of these prisoners, these pitiful prisoners, so that they couldn't push themselves up and get breath anymore, and they basically would suffocate. But they didn't break a single bone in Jesus' body, the Scriptures say, because he was already dead. And the Scriptures said that not a bone of his body would be broken. Jesus could not have possibly arranged that they would pierce his side 
with a spear, which they did. He couldn't have arranged for these soldiers at the foot of the cross to cast lots for his clothing. It goes on and on and on. These events were predicted at least a half millennium before Jesus was even born. And when you put all these prophecies together, you see that there is no way that they could have been fulfilled by accident. The odds against it are they're really astronomical. Well, how astronomical? Well, one scholar had his 12 classes of graduate students in mathematics. They're all working on their masters, okay, in mathematics. And, uh, you know, could you imagine a more boring class than that? I mean, I, I can't even, I, you know, I, I don't know. I'd rather do anything. But, but he had 12 classes that he was in charge of. And he, he calculated and computed the actual odds of 50 or so of these prophecies coming true in any one living individual down through history. And this is what they found out that the odds would be roughly equivalent to filling a trillion universes. We don't even know how big the universe is. We don't. Uh, you know, scientists, you know, they, they kind of throw it out, how many miles and light years and stuff like that. But we don't know. And the universe is expanding. And it's just, you know, but if you took a trillion universes, the size of w what we think the universe is, and filled it with sands, these 12 classes calculated how many grains of sand that that would be. I, I, can you imagine how many zeros are after that number? I mean, I can't even imagine. Now, with all that sand, think about one grain of sand that they painted green. One grain of sand. Now, imagine that you got into a spaceship, and you traveled as far as you wanted to, and you say you're about 16, 18 years out, and you go, that's far enough. And you open the porthole, and you stick your hand out, and you pull in one grain of sand, and you realize it's green. I found the one grain of sand. That would be the odds that all these prophecies could have coalesced around a single individual in history. The odds are almost impossible. Friends, these prophecies only came true in one individual, Jesus Christ. His sweet ride that morning was not all there was to signal everyone around him that Messiah had come. But it did help establish who he was. He was the Messiah. Well, <clears throat> something else that I think this story tells us. It tells us what he was like, what he was like. Um, the crowds on that Palm Sunday who were welcoming Jesus, you know, into with this ticket tape parade into Jerusalem, they really had no idea who he was. You know, the... the, the Confession of Peter, you know, which had happened before, you know, you're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That, you know, that was I, I, probably on, on one hand, not even, not even all the disciples, I'm convinced, didn't understand that whole thing. There was, there was so few people who really understood that. So they're welcoming in, you know, this, you know, Messiah or whoever this is, but they're welcoming him in as a military and political hero who they were hoping, come save us now, save us now, who they were hoping were going to, you know, give them victory over the hated Roman who were occupying their land. But Jesus had a whole different agenda. Jesus was not riding into Jerusalem atop a white stallion swinging a sword in every direction as a conquering military hero would. He chose to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, which is a common and was a common beast of burden. It is an animal that is universally recognized symbolically to 
show humility and peace and servanthood and gentleness. The crowds wanted a king who they could put on a throne. But what Jesus wanted was to be willingly enthroned in the hearts of all the people who were there in that crowd. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they got all excited, but what they didn't know was that he meant that the kingdom has begun, but it's going to begin in a different way than you think. It's going to begin in the hearts of human individuals, one by one. This man, this woman, this one understands the gospel. You know, this one, you know, comes to a, a place like Renew Life Center, and, and, and people are served, and they're giving food, and they're giving help, and, and they, they have needs, and they say, why are you doing this? See, and, and we could tell them about Jesus, and it's going to happen one at a time. It's not going to happen in, in great masses. It's not going to happen in a single day. It's going to happen like yeast, kind of working its way through the dough, little by little, little by little, and they didn't understand that, and they were looking for something else. Jesus was not coming to bring a short-term political solution to the Roman problem of the first century. He was coming to bring a long-term spiritual solution to the problem that all the people in that crowd shared for all of history, that our sins and our wrongdoings have separated us from God. Now, shortly before Jesus got onto that donkey to ride into Jerusalem, he said in Matthew chapter 20, He said, the Son of Man, God, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I'm coming as a servant to give my life as payment for others. To give my life as payment to other people. Now think about that for a moment. Think about the idea of a servant king, of a humble God. That is an oxymoron, if ever I've heard one. You know what an oxymoron is, right? It's two things, the same term that you can't possibly put together. You know, it just doesn't make any sense, you know? Jumbo shrimp, working vacation, congressional ethics, things like that. I'm kidding. You know, things like that. Uh, This whole idea of a humble God, a servant king, is an oxymoron, isn't it? Here you have Jesus of infinite power. Uh, absolute perfection, who deserves to be the focus of worship of all of creation. Here you have Jesus who's rightfully entitled to all the perks of being creator and, and, and world universe governor everywhere. And here you have Jesus who had every right in the world to angrily, angrily and forcefully sweep into Jerusalem on a stallion, swinging his sword to destroy everybody and, you know, just chopping them up left and right. See, he had that right to do that. Yet he came, and instead he chose to serve and to save, to save, to be the God of a second and fourth and tenth chance. Jesus Christ decided that he was going to humbly offer himself, the Bible says, as a payment for the wrongdoing that separates and will eventually forever separate us from God. Unless something happened, unless, you know, some miracle happened in between life, you know, birth and death, and it did, because Jesus Christ was willing to pave the way with his own life so that people could have a new beginning that they do not even deserve 
You know, many of us grew up with an inaccurate image of who Jesus is. I, I think. I think a lot of people do. The people in the crowd on that Palm Sunday weren't the only ones in history with an inaccurate perception of who Jesus is. Many of us saw Jesus uh, in our lives as a person who wants to storm into our lives, you know, kind of come in forcefully on a war horse, you know, strike us dead with his sword and kind of swinging it around, like I said. That's because we think that all the wrongs and all the mess-ups that we have had in our lives, you know what, had made him just so spectacularly angry that that's the only possible conclusion. We think all the times when we should have told the truth, but we were deceptive. Man, I'll tell you something. We live in a lying culture. You know, I, I almost feel like saying, I can't say this, but I almost feel like saying it. I'm close to saying it. Everybody lies. Man, I get lied to. I get lied to, I don't know how many times a day. You just know. I, I, all I can do is watch television. You're all being lied to. That so you need, you, you gotta have this. You, you know, we're being lied to again and again and again. And then it becomes part of kind of us. And, and we just, we, we, we tell lies. Why? Because we want what we want. And we fear man. And we become liars. We, we, we act unethically. We shave corners. We think all the time we should have reached out. We should have helped. We, sh we had very good intentions to write the note to send the text of, of encouragement, but we don't do it, and we turn our backs. All the sexual sin, all the deceptive motives. God sees it, and God knows. We think of those times in our life, I think, and they, they litter our lives, and then we think that maybe, and this makes perfect sense, maybe it's a good idea to kind of keep our distance from Jesus. I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> He's holy, he's God, maybe we should stand about 10 feet off, stay out of range of that sword. If he starts swinging it in my direction, man, you know what? There's going to be some blood on the ground. It's a comforting discovery when we find out that Jesus did not come to retaliate. He came to rescue and restore us. And when you think about that, it's almost too good to be true. When we picture Jesus riding into our lives gently, humbly, peacefully on a donkey, offering forgiveness and offering guidance and offering a different kind of life. So many of us make God something in our minds that he just is not. And maybe we need to take a breath uh, you know, and, and take a step back and, and, and develop a new mental picture of Jesus and let it soak in and let it marinate there. And instead of someone riding into your life, you know, without a sword, you know, or with a sword, clutch, clutching it in anger and swinging it in all directions, we need to picture Jesus coming in, riding on a donkey and extending his hand out to you for forgiveness to be welcoming, to draw someone in, to take his hand. And you know, this is a universal sign, a universal sign of love, to take his hand. And I just picture putting it on our heads and just saying, you know what? It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We don't do that except with people who are the most intimate in our lives Jesus does that he comes in and he, he embraces us 
as he comes humbly into our lives, he says, you know what? This is what I want my followers to do. This is how I want you to act too. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find what? For your souls. Yeah. Anybody want rest? Why is it that Jesus said that? Why did he tell us to be humble? Because humility was not a virtue among the ancients. When Jesus said that, we go, oh, okay, yeah, I, you know. Back then, it, it was kind of earth-shattering. Jesus took something that was a vice. Humility was considered weakness. Humility was considered something that you don't want to be. You do not want to be humble. You want to take charge. You want to force people. You want to push the issue. You want to you know, make people kind of bow down to your way. You want them to mold to your picture. That's strength. That's power. And, and Jesus comes and says, you know what? You know, my father is just the opposite. It's just the opposite. When, 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 you, when you come and, to each other and you, you, you approach each other in the kingdom, you treat each other with humility. And I got to tell you, this is the only way you can come to the father too, he says. You have to come with great humility. You need to come on bended knee. A lack of humility, pride, is the biggest, biggest roadblock I have found between people and God. It's the biggest roadblock. Ted Turner once said about Christianity, I don't, see, I don't need anybody to die for me. I don't need you to point out my faults. I don't need to ask you or anyone else for forgiveness. And you know, I got to tell you something. When I read that, I just said a prayer for Ted Turner because that saying, that quote will reverberate in his brain forever and ever and ever unless he bends the knee, unless he becomes humble like a child before the king of the universe. It's devastating, just absolutely devastating. The Bible says in James chapter 4, you must humble yourself in the sight of the Lord before he will lift you up. What does a humble person say? A humble person just says, when I can compare myself to other people, I come out looking fairly good, I think decently. I think most people like that. But when you get right down to it, and I compare myself to the ways that I really should be, I fall way short, way short. And if Jesus is willing to pay the price for my shortcomings, then frankly, I don't think I deserve it. But if he's willing to do that, I think I'd love to take him up on it. I think I would love to take him up on it. That's what a humble person says. Humility is having a realistic view of who we are, not in relation to other people, folks, but in relation to Jesus Christ. When we do that and are humble, we begin to break down the barriers between us and God, and we make it possible possible to begin a fulfilling relationship with him that the Bible says begins here but continues throughout all eternity. The fastest way for us to get to the destination of true humility 
is by contemplating what it is that that donkey should teach us, folks. He taught us who Jesus is, and he taught us what Jesus was like and is like. And when we think about the fact that he isn't a legend but the actual son of God, and when we think about his choice to receive us rather than reject us, we begin to catch a glimpse of the awesomeness of what all that means. Don't you? Can you feel that? Can, can, you, can you sense that this morning? Here's one more thing. That donkey tells us who Jesus was and tells us what he was like. But it also tells us what he deserves. What he deserves from us. If this great God slash prophet slash king would humble himself to the point of riding on the back of a donkey, then what should I offer you know, in response to him? What, what can I possibly offer? What is he deserving of? Well, verse 35 said this. They brought it to Jesus, the donkey, threw their cloak, cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. This is very telling. We just think it's kind of a nice thing. Well, that was nice, you know? I mean, I'm not sure I would do that today, I, I, you know, with a new jacket or something. It's like, you know, oh, the president's coming by. Ah, you know, uh, hey, I'd wave or something. I don't think I'd throw, I'd throw my jacket down. I don't want it to get mushed. I don't want, you know, him feet and, and, and donkeys and cars or whatever to roll over it. Folks, when they did this, they were making a statement. They were giving Jesus what he deserved, and I'm going to tell you why. Because back in those days, clothes were literally as good as money. If you had two complete sets of clothes, you were in the middle class. Two, two sets of clothes, okay? Uh, if you're walking alone on a highway and you're robbed, they wouldn't just take your money. You know what they'd do? They'd strip you down. They'd beat you up and strip you down because taking your clothes was as good as taking your money. That's why when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, it said that they robbed him and left him what? Naked. Was it just to embarrass him? It wasn't just to embarrass him. They were taking that, you know, the credit cards and the currency and the watch and the ring. They were taking everything they could. That's what clothes were. Clothes were money. So these people laying their clothes on the, you know, the back of this donkey and then laying them on the road to be trampled by this creature were saying, he deserves our best. He deserves our best. We are not holding back anything. It says when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, that the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they cried out, Hosanna. Hosanna. Save us, Lord. Save us. Our king is finally here. Save us. Now, you know, if you look at this scene, there were a lot of people, including or should I say included in the crowd that day were the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the, the ones who kind of ran society back then. And, and they're taking this all, can you imagine? They're taking this all in. They're watching everything that's happened. They had heard the rumors, the false rumors of Lazarus being raised, which they were already trying to debunk. 
But now they see the people, the crowds, taking off their money, you know, their clothes, and laying it so that Jesus, his little donkey, could trample on it and walk into town and walk into the heart of town. And they're watching this and they're getting nervous. And it says in verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is, this is, you know, religion 101. You see what they're doing to you? They are worshiping you. You have to understand. You see what's happening. We know that you're not a, we don't agree with you. We know you're not a dummy. Rebuke them right now. Tell them, stop. You know, I'm just a man like you. And Jesus responds to them with one of the most poetic statements about, you know, that, 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 who he was and that anybody has ever written, ever created. He said in verse 40, he said, I tell you, if you keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. You had better let them worship, he said to them, because if you shut them up, the very stones on the side of the road will start getting up on all fours and cheering. We were created to recognize and worship Jesus Christ as Lord. Scripture speaks throughout about how all of creation, the wind, the wave, the grass, the stones, give testimony to the Creator. Paul said it in Romans that all of creation, he kind of gave a personality to creation. He said all of creation is waiting in eager anticipation for the revelation of God, for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, creation which was cursed along with men and women, it's waiting, it's groaning, uh, Paul said in Romans, groaning like a woman in childbirth. And if we do not recognize who Jesus is, if we do not rise up and worship him and put him in his proper place in our lives, then the wind and the waves and the mountains and the trees, you know what they're going to do? They're going to show us up. They're going to make us look silly, those who know the truth. And even the rocks will be doing better by God than we The true king, he said, is revealing himself before your eyes, and you don't get it. Revealing himself in the circumstances of your life, in the good and in the difficult ones, and all the while giving you reason to rise up and to praise his name. Now, I know that there are some people, we, boy, I, you know... It was, it was like it was planned. We sang a song about coming to the end of ourself, you know, uh, during the worship time. And I had, I had already written down. He said, you know what, have you ever, I said, have you ever felt that you've come to the end of your rope, so to speak? And I'm singing that song and I'm going, yeah. Yeah, I have. I really have. But I know that God is working. That he is not silent. That he is not still. C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. He shouts. God speaks to us in every single circumstance of our lives. Can you hear him? Or are you too afraid to listen? God has a word. Don't you care? Some of you who are here this morning, you've known the truth. 
but you've drifted away. You know, drift is easy. Man, drift. I went fishing a few months back with a friend of mine in kind of a little lake, and, you know, he stopped rowing, and within about 10 minutes, we were like about 150 yards from where we started off. It's the easiest thing to, to start drifting in your life. You know, you're just doing stuff. We're fishing. We're not even paying attention. All of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute. Where did we, how did we get over here? It happens to people. It happens in our lives. Maybe God is using this message. Maybe he's using other little things in your life or big things to say to you, it is time to come back. It is time to come back. It is time once again to trust me with your life throughout all of your life. Through the good and through the desperate. Through the times when your heart is broken and bleeding to trust him. In Isaiah chapter 61, right near the end of the book, Isaiah writes, and he doesn't, you know, sometimes the prophets were writing, and they were writing to specific things in their own day, but they're writing, they didn't even realize it. Jesus interpreted it later on, you know, and the New Testament writers interpreted it. They were writing to something that was so much bigger. And Isaiah 61 is one of those places and it says the spirit of the sovereign lord is on me because the lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our god which was poured out on jesus on the cross to comfort all who mourn provide for those who grieve in zion To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the day of his splendor. Jesus. That was Jesus. Your ride, they say, they say, says a lot about you. And it tells other people a lot about you too. If that is true, then judging from that Palm Sunday many, many years ago, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is God. God with a humble heart who is forgiving to all who come to him, and God who is deserving of our whole lives, who is deserving of our worship, and extending an invitation to you this morning to let him enter in. A ride can tell us a lot. Jesus is speaking to you, I think, today. Can you hear him? Are you willing?